my current business is called The Operators, and I'm trying to take what exists in sports today and has existed in sports for a long time and bring it to tech. And what I mean by that is when you think about, when you think of like LeBron James, Michael Jordan, like all these champion all-stars who expert in their domains, like they're the best that there is within their craft. They're able to focus on basketball, right? Like LeBron, he has an agent, he has a coach, he has a manager, he has EA support, he has connections into the influencer world and the celebrity world. And there's just people helping him with his entire life, right? Zach video here from Boston Speaks Up. That was the voice of Ryan Durkin. Ryan is an absolute badass, probably doesn't need an introduction. Most people may know him if you're listening to this podcast. He most recently headed up product at Drizzly. Yes, that's right, Drizzly. That just recently recently sold to Uber for over a billion dollars. Uh, prior to that, he was a key product role at Wayfair. He's been a part of a bunch of startups in Boston over the last decade. Um, he, you know, following Wayfair, he, he got together with a bunch of former Wayfair employees and, and he's a part of Wayfund, which invests in startups started by former employees of Wayfair. He actually has some really good ideas on how more companies can create more Wayfunds. And most um, recently and probably most significantly, we're going to talk about his new business called The Operators, which brings a sports agency approach to tech talent. So when you think about what sports agents do for professional athletes, that's what Ryan and the operators is doing for the tech for tech talent in Boston. So I'll sort of stop there and just let y'all um, enjoy the conversation because it's a really great one and I'm excited to share it. Enjoy. Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up. For more than 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com. Zach Servideo here from Boston Speaks Up, and I'm here with tech super agent and the founder of The Operators, Ryan Durkin. What's up, Ryan? How you doing, man? I'm doing very well, thanks. Um, I just had a birthday yesterday, turned 36. Feeling, go. feeling good, feeling youthful. Feel, go. I, feel, I feel 26. I like that. I like that. I know you and I share a, a passion for wanting to live well past 100 years old. So you're about yeah. maybe a third or a quarter or a fifth of the way there. Yeah, exactly. And um, another another sort of passion I have is soccer. And I tell, like, I heard from a few of my buddies yesterday that I was I was playing in a competitive men's league in, in LA just recently, a couple of years ago. And they're like, "Oh, how you doing, man? Happy birthday! Miss you." And I was like, "I'm staying in shape in case I get the call from the New England Revs practice squad." Um, that's right. I always tell my friends like that's kind of my barometer for for health is like, you know, if if an eleven v eleven full field soccer game broke out, could I could I do it? You know, could I play ninety minutes? <laughs> um, so I'm out there running. I'm doing the peloton. I'm I'm just trying to stay in shape and trying to be as healthy a you know and strong a father as I can for uh, for my wife and daughter. 
Yeah. So Ryan, man, it's, it's, this is, this is like, when I think about why I started Boston Speaks Up, there's like a few reasons. So I'm going to kind of get, I'm going to get deep for a second. Listeners can, can bear with me and then we're going to give it, get it, get into Ryan's story and and what he's up to now and kind of unpack it all. But, you know, I moved back from LA a couple of years ago and I love the Boston innovation scene. I miss how it was, was like in the late 2000s, early 2010s it's it's definitely a scene that's tough to navigate like it's hard to know like where to go and which companies are hot and and you know i i and for for you know for me from like a blue collar kid from methuen which isn't far from where you grew up in andover like i didn't even know that boston was like a tech city and there's so many young people like just in the commonwealth that like don't even realize like there's all this opportunity in in boston and so when i came back i was like well number one you know, I'm a dad now, I got limited time, but I want to catch up with people that I really appreciate, you know, I, I really appreciated, um, you know, back in the day when I was in Boston, like guys like, you know, Clem Cazalot, when he was a founder going through Techstars and now he's the managing director of Techstars Boston. Like I'd love to catch up with yep. Clem and get the lay of the land from him and shit, like what, what better way to do that than maybe produce it. Right. I'm a, I'm a media, you know, I'm a media guy. Like, let me, let me, maybe, I, maybe I should start a podcast, catch up with some people that I've lost touch with that are in, you know, high purchase in Boston. And then also like, you know, make that information, those conversations just accessible to yep. people, you know, a lot of people. And so folks can kind of, you know, young people can kind of navigate the Boston landscape and get a sense for like, you know, who are the VCs, who are the entrepreneurs, like, you know, what, you know, yeah. like what, what are the, you know, like a resilient coders exists. Oh my God. Like I'm yeah. a young, you know, uh, black female from Lowell. And like, I would, I would like, I, I would love to learn how to code. Like I can apply for this free boot camp and get a job and, you know, make 95 grand a year right out of the gates. Like yep. amazing. Like, yep. so, and, and then like one of the, and then I think like one of the last things too, is just kind of the new collisions and just like naturally like, I'm looking to meet like minds and, and for a while I've, you know, developed a really good friendship with Jesse Bardo uh, over at Silicon Valley bank and that inception inception of series a practice. And, and he said something to me like, like a little while back, like I, I, I caught some like tweets from you, Ryan. And I was just like, man, like this, this Durkin dude, like he just seems like he puts off the energy that is very aligned with mine. And I said to Jesse, I'm like, I need to meet him. He's like, you don't know Durkin? And I was like, no, he's like, oh my God, you two need to meet. And so, you know, <laughs> I, I th- shout out to Jesse for connecting us. But like, you know, I think that's just my long winded way of like, you know, those are some of the reasons why I started Boston Speaks Up. But, but in particular, like, I mean, I feel I've, this is a very special, um, you know, podcast for me because you know, I was reading through just the incredibly thoughtful um, responses that you provided to the pre-podcast questionnaire. And I read through it like a few times. And I said to my wife this morning before she went off, you know, she works at the uh, Northeast Animal Shelter, MSPCA. And I was like, babe, I'm like, she's like, she's like, what, what are you all focused on over there? Like, I was just like, intently reading. I'm like, I'm like, this is like, I haven't, I really haven't looked forward to like, an, you know, an interview for the podcast. Like I am this one, like this, this dude's like, in my brain, but he's in my brain with like things that I've thought, you know, for years and years and years. So, um, without further ado, I want to properly kind of let you introduce yourself, Ryan, but I just kind of wanted to say like, you know, thank you for the time. Thank you for the energy you put out into the world. Um, I think it's, you know, folks, listeners will see as they, um, 
as, as they listen to this podcast. And if they, if they haven't yet, they, they soon will know you better. And I think be eager to, to find ways to kind of, um, you know, connect and, and learn more from, from, from your thoughts on, on a range of topics. Uh, but I just want to thank you for being here today from the bottom, bottom of my heart. And, um, and I'm really, you know, really excited to, to share this with, with the community of Boston and beyond. Nice dude. Yeah. Thank yeah. Thank you for that. And thanks. Uh, Hopefully I can live up to, up to the words you just said, but um, yeah, man, thanks for having me on. Um, of course. And yeah, so did, why don't you start? Yeah. Why don't you start by just giving for like a background on what you're working on right now, the operators, yep. maybe what you're, and maybe you can talk, touch on maybe what you're up to with Wayfund, and just give a sense of like, this is, this is what I'm doing right now. And then we can kind of unpack like how you got here. Yeah. Yeah. You got it. Uh, okay. So my current business is called the operators and I'm trying to take what exists in sports today and has existed in sports for a long time and bring it to tech. And what I mean by that is when you think about, when you think of like LeBron James, Michael Jordan, like all these champion all-stars who expert in their domains, like they're the best that there is within their craft. They're able to focus on basketball, right? Like LeBron, he has an agent, he has a coach, he has a manager, he has EA support, he has, connections into the influencer world and the celebrity world. And there's just people helping him with his entire life. Right. And mm -hmm. whether it's gaining exposure to, you know, different coaches in the league or different owners or the connection side of it, like the opening door side of it, or the negotiation side, when it comes time to closing a deal, he has a hand in it for sure, but his agent. And as we all know, like the agents of the world in sports, they're well known for the fact that they're very good at that. Right. Like, they are mostly lawyers. Like they are great at negotiating. They are able to go to the table and be smart about getting a win-win. You know, um, on the management side, they have people taking care of their finances. They got them investing in not just VC deals, which has kind of happened since that dashing kosher push like 10, 15 years ago and everything that YC has brought to the table and seeing the power that having athletes or having celebrities on cap tables means. But, you know, today's day and age, like the crypto world, like, Right. The push from that since, you know, 10 plus years ago, but really since 2014, 2017, with all the excitement is certainly what's going on right now. Like there's a whole world out there for these people to be investing in that previously they didn't have exposure to, right? Or interest from other people talking to them and teaching them and educating them on the space. And on the coaching side, like coaching in sports is you have your coach and then you also have additional coaches, right? For the NFL, there's Belichick, but there's also someone coaching them on the quarterback side. There's someone coaching the defense. There's someone coaching the offense. Like there's a shit ton of support. And when you look at tech, you've got like largely none of that exists, right? So if you're an operator and if you are a VP of product or CMO or founder or whoever, you do not have an agent by and large. Like right now I'm changing that story and I have people who I represent and open doors for and negotiate for and close deals. But today, when someone is trying to figure out their life and their career, and I'm not just talking about like next job opportunity, I'm talking about like fucking 20, 30 years from now, where do they want to be? Who do they want right. to be? What are they prioritizing? Like by and large, most people are on their own. Um, when it comes time for the next job opportunity, they it typically goes like this, right? Like you'll do a little bit of research in town, you'll hear what's hot, you'll dig into those companies, You'll hear what people around town, people are talking about. You try to get connected to them. 
you'll reach out to guys like Jesse and, and who's a super connector in town who can hope, help open up some of these stores. But mm-hmm. the research side of it, the knowledge side of it, like what you were describing earlier and how I put myself back in my shoes 12 years ago when we were starting a company out of UMass, like we had no idea anything about the Boston ecosystem, you know, and luckily we met a lot of good people along the way to help plug us in. But even back then, and even still to this day, like knowledge is not centralized, which I think is good and bad. I think you've got a good number of media companies in and around the city, not just in Boston, but New York and wherever that are helping pull together information to help people. But there's also not a lot of like people, I think, willing to speak their mind and call spades spades. And I think like the position that I have in the market and quite frankly, just from like how I am normally, I have no problem, you know, speaking to what founders in town, I think, are doing a really good job. Uh, I have no problem speaking to companies that I may know have flattered declining growth that people are really amped up about from the kind of like PR monster machine side of it. But, you know, when you talk to employees internally and operators across the entire spectrum, you realize that there's like, there's uh, varying opinions on those matters. So like, what I tried doing in starting this company is, is really saying like power to the people, like, let's help these operators get exposure, knowledge, you know, let's help close these deals for them in a world where they're not great at negotiating. And then, you know, get them invested in different things. And all of this equity that everyone's taken and you look around at the Wayfarers and the DraftKings of the world that printed a ton of millionaires, right? And a ton yeah. of people who make a couple hundred thousand bucks. And how do you just help them and give them the support they need? So that's what I'm building right now. Yep. That's great. That That's great. It's really thoughtful background. And as you were going through, I was just, I was just jotting down and I'm just, I'm curious what you think are the main areas you're disrupting, but I was like, geez, you're disrupting, you know, almost the executive coaching arena, the recruiting arena, sort of like personal finance, kind of like money management arena. Um, And and then disrupting slash like kind of introducing these new things, which is like almost like a personal, like micro, almost like a, like almost a publicist type of role, opportunity discovery, contract negotiation. Like these are now new net new things that don't really exist. So, I mean, is that, is that a fair way to kind of like summarize it a bit too? Cause like, I'm just thinking like, there's this really complex Venn diagram of like major sectors, all of which have underwhelmed me over the years. Like if I could just riff on this for a second, like recruiters, sorry, like, and I've said this before in this podcast, like recruiters by and large suck, like they're super underwhelming. And then the recruitment game in general is, isn't, is just like, it's set up for failure. Like I have some friends that work at some like big recruitment firms that are talented. And then they have like a farm team that just like, it's just, it's, it's just really, um, it's a race to the bottom kind of business. And there's just a lot of holes with the recruitment business. Um, I think the finance and money management side of this is really interesting because, I I've, I see and I hear some of my friends that are like, oh, I got this guy that's like helping me invest in things and helping me set goals and invest my money. And and I like, I'll be like, oh, cool. Like I'll look into them and I'll like go and like check out like what they're putting on Instagram and stuff. And it's like, and I'll do like one call with them just to get a sense of like what they're, how they're coming at things. And I'm like, oh, like this person, like number one, like they're like, a, like they're kind of an underwhelming, just like finance person. But then also like, I don't want just like, some finance person in my life, like to give me advice. Like I want someone that's more invested in like the well-rounded version of myself. Like I like that can talk to me about goal setting that can talk to me about my career. 
the opportunities that I'm seeking now, the opportunities I want to set myself up for in the future. Like it's just too like rigid and narrow and like mechanical, like kind of the sort of like Mm -hmm. money management, like kind of personal finance manager kind of field, like however you would qualify that. So I'll kind of, I'll, I'll pause there because those are, those are just areas where like, where we, where we, the people have been underserved and then, and then the, and actually the last point I'll say, and then the winners are big companies. And I think you hit on this in the pre-podcast questionnaire. It's like for tons of, you know, the 10 Xers in the world, like, like folks that produce like, you know, 10 X plus value relative to like their comp essentially, which I think like guys like you and I are like we, if we're, when we're at companies, oftentimes, especially earlier in our career, we're getting squeezed tons of value out of us. But then the other flip flip side, like there's always tons, like there's tons of people that are like also getting compensated a lot and reaping the spoils or like the company itself is just like, you know, building just these like fat margins off people. And it's not to say that like compensation has to be directly related to revenue, but those the special talent that exists helping drive that revenue should be engaged in more sort of like profit sharing sort of like revenue aligned incentive aligned sort of contract relationships more reflective of what you see like high performing athletes get so when i hear you kind of share what you're sharing i'm like fuck yeah because damn like like that would because because also that would have been great you know I would I would have loved having this sort of a solution in my twenties when I was getting milked hard, you know, one place after another, and just realizing like, okay, I, all right, well, I guess I'm getting great experience, but man, like, how am I not yep. getting a piece of the action on the business and like these equity deals and and everything? So yep. what, that's a and, and so that's a lot to disrupt. And I guess so the no, so you respond to that, but also my my question for you too is like how do you scale what you're doing? Like do you, you, and, and yep. I guess it's, yep. it's with, it's with like minds, but, but yeah, like, like kind of respond yep. to that freely, freely. Yeah, I can go, I can go and teach and I'll try to, um, if there's any piece of this that you were asking about that I don't address, just ask me. Um, okay. so I think like, I think like with regards to recruiting, so back into recruiting, I think there's a couple things at play that help me and my my crew of operators in this particular industry one is like we've been on the operator side which is incredibly important right like when i'm talking to a potential head of product right who's maybe a director at a series c company who wants to step into a vp role at a series a company like I've been in product the past 10 years. And when it comes time to assessing them, like I can actually interview them, right? Like right. I've done these interviews on the product side, on the analytics side, engineering, I will not interview. I'll have like our engineering operators interview them. And you can picture how this scales out is where you have engineers who are agents and, and also, you know, not just able to like assess the person, but make inroads and be able to talk the talk between the candidate and the company, which clearly will help in negotiations. Right. Um, when I think about my business and you were talking about the pieces to it, there are, there are three pieces, right? This agent piece, which is really the recruiting side. There's the coaching piece and there's the management place, which, which for right now we'll just talk about investing and we'll keep that one short. But okay. when I think about the recruiting side today, like, I think the biggest difference is just this very consumer mindset to this, right? Like recruiting over the past, however many years, kind of forever, um, has really been like recruiter works for company, 
recruiter gets roles and by the way helps and and like a lot of my friends are recruiters there's there's nothing wrong with it if anything i actually want to try to like help shift these people in the direction of being you know not just more consumer first because i think recruiters would argue that they are consumer first but i want to help reposition their careers in the same way that like real estate brokers today are getting kind of upheaved by the zillows and the redfins of the world right like there's movement there's trends coming that i think will push these people in a direction. I want to help craft that out for them. Yeah. They but, have to respond by um, the way. This is a good way totally. to respond to those, to those disruptions they're already facing. Totally. And, and some of it may mean them going and getting additional operational experience within deeper dives into people ops and the plethora of roles that have come up over the past five, 10 years, really. But part of it may be moving into product or growth acquisition and, well, you know, CRM. Can I jump like, in there for a sec? Things. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. so this, and this is like, to, cause I, I wasn't, I was maybe a bit vague. Like my specific issues whenever I've talked to recruiters over the years is just the lack of ability to sort of relate and sp- speak to me and my specific yeah. skill set yeah. directly. Right. They, they yeah. can speak very confidently to roles they have in mind for me. But then once I start talking to them, well, well you know, but actually like I'm this, I'm this unicorn. And so I can do this and that and the other thing. So like that narrow role doesn't fit me and here's why. And it's like, Oh, well, how about this other role? And it's another role that's a yeah, square peg. Yeah. And, and I'm this, and I'm this, you know, uh, I'm, a, you know, it's this round hole and I'm this square peg. And the disconnect is more in their ability to relate to me, like the kind of dynamic operator, you know, yeah. marketer guy, right. BD guy. And, yep. and I think that's what, you're suggesting right when you suggest like maybe they need to go get some of that operational experience like because a part of it seems to me like it's it's a bit of an experience and relatability issue 100 percent, yeah and it's saying to someone like in the world of shit that you could do right like if you're in product and you want to stay in product great if you're in marketing acquisition and you want to move to product or bi and analytics um let's like explore that together you know Let's make introductions for you to go and talk to people in product if you're looking to dive into that space. Most of the people I help are in like that, you know, they're in that director VP level, which I think is like grossly underserved. I think there's a lot of people helping founders. I think there's people helping people kind of transition into tech for the first time, which is awesome. And I'm all about that. But I do think that there's kind of been this forgotten group of people. And that's the base I'm trying to serve, that director VP and then up and comers. But to your point, yeah, recruiting has historically been like, I've got these roles. Where do you want to go? And, you know, you look at people who end up taking some of these roles who are fucking miserable after three months of being there. And then I look at my people who I end up helping and they're, you know, they're there multiple years still saying like, Dirk and like, you know, I can't thank you enough. You helped me dramatically in my life with this new opportunity it's because we put in the time, nice. you know, like we talked through a ton of companies and like a lot of companies are partners. A lot of companies aren't. And like on my end, I just want to make sure that I do right by the person. And then the hope of that is if I can provide really high touch, like one-on-one level of service, that is fucking amazing. The goal would be that they would come back to me over time, you know, no promises. But I think that that's like, that's a key differentiator is I spend a lot of time with my people. And on the tech side, you're, you're talking about like, how does this scale? I don't fully know yet. I do know that mm-hmm. I have a ton of tech that's in the background on the, like from an internal tools perspective. But as a consumer guy, you know, like I've been at Drizzly, I've been at Wayfair. My first company was consumer focused that we started coming out of college. And like, I, what I don't want to do and what I see a lot on the recruiting side is a lot of companies go 
and build products that are, whether they're SaaS based or consumer based, like they invest hardcore in engineering up front before they really have figured out what the fuck they actually want to build and do for the long term. And how I think about this thing is like, I want to build this company for the next like 120 years. Like right. my hope is that this would be the last company that I quote unquote go to or build, right? Like, because I see the potential for this thing. Like, I truly think that we can change this entire recruiting industry. And then I think we can give support that today when I talk about the coaching side and this idea of a coaching marketplace or the investment side, those are two pillars today. Like there could be eight or 10 pillars down the road. I have no fucking idea, right? But like, this is the industry that I want to be focused on. Um, and I see all the trends moving in that direction. So That's great. So a few things on that. I mean, one is I could totally see it being a 120 year company and and in the you know the umbrella that is you know under the umbrella that is the operators is certainly this initial sort of stronghold and sort of disrupting and kind of i would say like setting a, an appropriately new path for the recruiting industry and then all of a sudden you have these burgeoning you know second and third areas which is the executive coaching the money management all of that makes sense to me. Those three pillars make, make a lot of sense. I actually, another thing that I'd love you to speak to kind of on the top here is just talk a bit about the ISA, like peer to peer model. And I'll just give you like for, for yeah. a quick background, yeah. from my perspective, that was one of the things I was reading where I was like, Holy shit. So I texted my, my cousin JP Servideo, who I've had on the podcast, super, yep. super talented driven kid. Um, you know, we're like Servideos are blue collar family from Chelsea. Like I was the first of, my, of our generation to go to college. Like, some others now have and like, but like some haven't and, and like, that's fine. And like, you know, to your point and you're like, we'll talk about education a little bit. Like there's all these, like there was, there's been more difficult paths to not go to college and make, and make it. So someone's will make it, yep. but, but a lot of my cousins have done it. My cousin JP, he's, he's, you know, went and found, um, Than Merrill from, from, um, the big real estate Titan in San Diego. And he's working with fortune builders and, you know, to, to make a long story short, like he founded future fortune builders. Cause he's like, no one's teaching, you know, high school kids in particular in like public schools, like about, you know, debt and building credit and just like teaching them a financial literacy. So they can like make some simple steps to just get ahead in life, like between the ages of 13, to 18, um, you know, so they don't make some missteps like going in the world, like whether they go to college or not. And one yep. of the things that yep. he and I have talked about a lot, cause like he, like he told the amazing story on the podcast about how he could barely graduated from Winthrop high. And, uh, he and I have this dream of like creating this, like, you know, we, we joke the project's called like blue collar fund where like, it's essentially a peer to peer, peer to peer lending model where, yep. you know, fo folks who are, who have who've so, quote unquote made it and like, just want to like back talent and just like yep. back that talent. And then like, and, and like, whether it's helping them with their, with debt that they've incurred or just, they need backing to like pursue a startup idea. Um, and just yep. basically like be, you know, be, you know, have a framework for, you know, helping essentially, you know, kids from, and it doesn't have to be blue collar backgrounds, just from different backgrounds and, and backgrounds where like, you know, there's a certain criteria where you're like helping people, um, that maybe have like lesser pathways maybe than folks with like, you know, a four, you know, that grew up with like a four car garage. Um, yep. and that was, that was a, that was a slight little joke nod to, um, Josh Rosen who came out in the, the 
NFL a few years ago and his big knock on him in the NFL draft was he had a four car garage. I don't actually think if you grew up with a four car garage, that should be knocked on you as a person. However, it may indicate that you have some finances in your life that could maybe help you and you maybe wouldn't need blue collar fund. Um, so anyways, back to this point, I would love for you to respond on the peer to peer lending model because I'm very intrigued by it. Yep. And it's something that is on my life goals list that now apparently falls um, uniquely um, within the focus of, of the operators, which is quickly becoming my favorite company in Boston. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, cool. Let me get to that. So I think, yeah, so I think that question is rooted. When I think of that, I think of trends. And I think like there's a number of different trends pushing in this realm. And for, and for those who don't know, ISA stands for income share agreement. And part of the idea here is that, actually, I'll get to this in a second. When you think about trends that are pushing in this direction, you've got the decline of like the collegiate inst institution, right? Which has honestly been on the decline for the past like 20 years and people are like really starting to pay attention to it now and COVID has helped, helped accelerate this. But that is one trend where people are looking and saying, why would I be spending, you know, I think it, when I went to UMass and I don't know what it is now, but when I was there it was like 19K, it's probably fucking 40K now. I have no idea. But right. the rising price of all these colleges, which clearly is, in my opinion, ridiculous, especially for the fact that you can learn pretty much everything online that you would ever want to. I know everyone has different opinions on that, but like as someone who truly believes that for a lot of skilled domains, you can do that. The college dollar amount seems to be a little ridiculous. Um, you have, um, you have the focus on like really helping people find careers that they dig, right? You've got, and we talked about this a little bit previously, you mentioned some of the resilient coders and groups within Boston. Like there's a ton of these throughout the country that are trying to introduce people into domain disciplines that they're interested in and support them by giving them operators who are around them who have been there and done that and can give them advice and then plenty of time. This ISA space is in the company that I love right now is Lamb School. Like these guys will say, do you want to learn how to program? We will teach you. And there's no upfront cost. You don't come in and you pay 20 grand upfront in order to get this education. You're going to come in the door we're going to surround you with great teachers. We're going to teach you how to do this skill. And in X number of months, 9, 12 months, I forget the duration, but we're going to help get you into a number of different tech companies and maybe even non-tech companies to start programming. Um, and the agreement with this income share agreement is that once you get placed, you'll end up owing us a percentage of your income over time. And companies today may be setting that time period for one year. They may be setting it for 18 months or 24 months where you're making an installment every single month based on the income. What, what Lando School is doing now, which is super interesting, which they have publicly started talking about, especially over the past 30, 60 days, is like they are going to companies right now and saying to a company, the first 30 days are on us. Like you can hire an engineer for your company and not pay them for the mm. first 30 days. And you can see what you think of them and decide, do I want to hire them? Do I not want to hire them? Two weeks ago, they came out saying like, you know, what would a world be where we could bring an entire engineering team, like a fire team, like in the military, you've got you know, my brothers in the Marine Corps, you've got your rifleman, you've got your machine gunner, you've got your, you know, whether grenadier or another rifleman, like you have a little team of three to four people who are being led by a team lead. And what if you could take an entire team 
and inject that into a company and give right. them an option to say like, do you want them? Do you not want them? Like, this is some really interesting shit that like in the past has never really existed. There's been companies try it um, and a ton of those companies have failed. And when I look at what these guys at Lambda School are doing, I think it's really, it, it's got a lot of eyes on it and rightfully so. And so like when I think about, and, and that's just like one company of a sea of many that you're going to see over the next five to 10 years across all domains, right? right. Like, and not just tech, not just tech. Right. Question um, on that. So with Lambda School yeah. too, like I, I get the in- income share agreement, like you know upfront cost, you, you, Lambda School teaches you that, uh, say, a, you know, coding skill and helps you get into a job. Is there even, haven't I, I thought I read this, is, is there potential with Lambda School too, or with certain relationships with, with certain companies are starting to say like, if the talent, like, and this is where it disrupts recruiting a bit because recruiting expenditures are so large for these companies. So essentially if you're, if Lambda School is providing essentially the role of recruiter here and placing talent, could then the yep. companies offset the income, like ha- help, basically take away the hit to the talent totally, totally. and pay Lambda totally. school back. And then, the, and then actually, so it's like, listen, so for the talent over time, hopefully it becomes like, listen, you don't have to pay 20 grand up front. There's an income share agreement and we're finding increasingly companies when they get talent from Lambda school, um, they will basically incur the cost and they'll cover the, you know, the, you know, that, that, you know, percentage of your income that's got to come back our way for us to cover our nut, like that's going to actually come from the company. And I think that, and then ultimately that would be sort of probably the most ideal scenario for everyone. And what you're describing right now, and I know that they have like multiple different ways to do it. I think one of them is like you pay 17% of your monthly income over 24 months. There's a cap on it. I forget if it's 30 grand or 50 grand, but like the point that you just made and the point that I would make to the industry is like, there are creative deal structures that exist, yeah. especially in sports. <laughs> and you just named one, right? And I, I bet like if you and I sat down over a couple hours and were to go to a whiteboard and try to map out a ton of different creative agreements that could be had here, you know, whether it's, you know, people usually just think about base bonus and equity, but there's a lot more that exists in sports with regards to like player options and different incentives and you know, if you get injured, you know, still being able to get paid, like there's a lot of creativity that can be ejected to the industry. And I think in the past, when people who have looked from the outside in, and I hear this today, they'll say like, well, you can't do that, right? Like that would break the stockholder agreement, right? That would, that would do this. That would do that. That would be unfair, you know? And, and, you know, I've heard points of people saying like, well, you can't, I've been, I've been, I push this narrative to say like, you know, there's a Tom Brady or a Patrick Mahomes that are paid massive amounts of money to perform, right? Yeah. And in tech, historically, it's been like, well, they have, you know, in sports, they have ratings and reviews and completion rates and rushing yard, um, what's it called? Uh, you know, goals that they've hit and they're getting accolades for this stuff. Well, yeah, and then right. when I look at, and they say like, you can't make those compliment, you know, those comparisons to tech. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, yeah, you can. Like every everyone who goes and talks to a company on their LinkedIn and their resume, like what are all those things? They're accomplishments, right? Like, and maybe they're not as standardized today. But like when I sit down and try to standardize some of these across product people or across salespeople, like there actually are a lot of these things that you can standardize and speak to beyond quoting market. But anyways, your point's a good one, and I think that like one challenge that I would have 
not just with me and my own team, but like any company that gets into the space, which there will be many, um, is like get creative. You know, you see what's going on in the crypto sphere right now where they're like issuing tokens to employees and to fans and yeah. not having people sign the traditional stockholder agreement and, right. you know, not sitting down and just giving someone a two page offer that's super basic and bland. Like there are companies doing some really creative shit out there. And I think that those that pay attention to that and adopt some of those things and then think creatively on their own are going to do really well over the next like 10, 20 years. And those that don't, I think that they're going to get left behind. You know? Yeah, there's, um, yeah, I completely agree. There's, there's some really, there's a really good, um, product and operator team that came together that it's a, it's actually a client that I work with through fa- through my business fabric media and the name of the company is called, um, mad. They're, they're, they're known as there's, there's sort of two entities, mad network and mad hive. And mm-hmm. there, there's a level of, of cryptography and, 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 and blockchain, um, in sort of the, foundational tech that they offer into the advertising industry to basically help create transparency, uh, identify and eliminate fraud, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Um, but they also very, you know, and it's, you know, one of the dudes, the CTOs like the, um, built like Zynga, like just like really just like, and, but, but the point more there is like, didn't come from the ad advertising land, but they were like, well, there's this opportunity to leverage cryptography to bring transparency, et cetera, to, to advertising, but also like, you know, we want to build a company that people are incentivized and and have shared ownership to work at. So they went the ICO model and, and, you know, the, the token economics are, um, you know, are such that, you know, even, even folks like myself and, and, and like, you know, quote unquote vendors, like, you know, are, you know, that work with the company, um, you know, over the years have had opportunities to get, um, you know, skin in the game, if you will. And, and I think, you know, I think that the thing about, um, you know, crypto and tokenomics that is, I think misunderstood is that it's always just like, like that there's like this, like financial kind of like, like, like hustle or like, like, or, or just like, you know, obscure, unclear, you know, way that 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 money's being being made like there's such as like i think the crypto craze of a couple of years ago kind of undermined a lot of the movement yep. but the, the yep. reality is is it's it's to your point more about like around like just creativity like it's a more modern it affords modern creative ways to um facilitate and to manage and and and, and account for matter of factly um you know shared collective equity in things that people are spending their precious breaths on this planet working on. Like it's super practical. Like that's crypto. Like, like to me, like, and obviously it's a lot of things, but to me, that's like what cryptography and, and, and sort of blockchain and those token economics offer, offer the workforce. I mean, I, I mean, feel free to speak a bit on that, on that topic, but, but it's just interesting to me, how and it's almost like if i could if i could have like crypto as a client like it needs a brand like a rebrand and it needs like like it, like and, and there's certainly like consortiums and like like even mad in the advertising realm has created ad ledger which is the blockchain advertising mm-hmm. consortium where they work with mm-hmm. like the big agency holding companies the wpps and the omnicoms of the world and 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 the tv networks and and, and the innovation people it's like the, there's and they tend to be, you know, 30 something, the 40 somethings like that, you know, they're, they're of all ages, but like there's, there's these group, small little clusters of people at these massive, you know, whether TV networks or holding companies, they all, they all 
quote unquote get it. And so they're like they're collectively coming together industry by industry in these consortiums where they're like trying to break down like the barriers of misunderstanding around crypto yep. and how how it impacts and and actually is a catalyst um not just to help like the businesses make money but actually to help individuals and give power back to the yep. people. And it's like that's yep. the you know and that and that great branding exercise I think is right now I think by and large like at a mac from a macro standpoint falling short on a micro standpoint you go industry by industry and you find some like industry consortiums that are doing a solid job of like re um orienting people's brains around like actually what you know blockchain or crypto offers that market to give the you know individuals in that market really just more shared ownership of the success of the marketplace yep yep yeah i uh you clearly take the industry and i've been i mean i invested in bitcoin back in 2014 which was very lucky because i took good advice from one of my buddies this guy ryan Selkis, who runs masari um he was at a uh, boston college but i've been you know i'm clearly like politically i would say independent libertarian whatever you want to call it but like everything that's happening right now with regards to bitcoin with regards to ethereum i I think like the space that i really dig is this community tokenization these social capital this idea of fan ownership right like you look at in sports with the green bay packers where you have fans owning you know part of the company where you look at real madrid where you look at what's happening in esports right now and fans owning a part of it like what would it be like for a drizzly or a clubhouse or a whoever is helping build the company beyond founders beyond employees beyond investors you know beyond advisors which are kind of the buckets board like how could you allow someone who's taking part in terms of whether they're buying product or just participating and let them participate in the upside. This is actually like a ma- this is a massive conversation right now in Clubhouse. Like if you were to log in at any point in time, there is multiple rooms on this topic because you look at all of the people that are in all of these rooms building equity value in the company beyond you know the investors and the celebrities now that are in there helping drive a lot of this initial engagement. There's a shit ton of value being created by these people, by customers. Yeah. Um, and I and I want to try to. You know, when you talk to companies today and you say, well, if we were to take that model and bring it to existing tech today, whether it's consumer tech companies or SaaS companies in Boston, you get hit immediately with, you know, well, that violates the stockholder agreement <laughs> again, right? So it's like yeah. those answers to me are like not sufficient. They are, they are an existing barrier today. And again, I think it's going to take maybe a little bit more creativity, maybe a little bit more pushing, maybe an entire reinvention of how all that is structured. But this creator economy, this community economy, like it is not going away. And the idea of like having companies that are truly decentralized and allowing the community members to make decisions on behalf of like not just the group, but the entity and the value that they're bringing to other people, which is partly, you know, this is clearly where the intersection of my vision for the operators long term, but there's a lot of value that we're creating, not just amongst the group, but for other people and a lot of value that other people are creating for this, this company. So I want to be able to find a way to incentivize everybody, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And sorry to like to jump on you there, but like at the end, I'm, I'm, I'm just closing my eyes and listening to you talk and I'm, I'm thinking about trends right now and I'm thinking about NFT and I'm like, thinking of the humans, like the talent, and I'm thinking of the operator's model. And I'm just thinking about the ability to like, 
over time, like as you're building your talent pool, the talent that you, whose interests you represent, I'm just thinking about like the, the sort of token economics of that talent and how you can, you know, create, come up with creative structures to essentially like put the, that talent out on loan, you know, or, or make that talent available to the marketplace and, you know, create, um, you know, dynamic, um, you know, business relationships between, you know, the talent and, you know, startup X. Yep. Um, yeah, and that, that, that will be really, that will be really interesting. Yeah. And that's, that to me is like this social capital around NFTs. I look at, at like, it's a bit different the way I look at it. I honestly don't spend much time in that space and researching that space. You're, not, you're really not buying well. and racing virtual uh, horses like one of my colleagues. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually thought that was pretty interesting. It I is interesting. That was one application that people yeah. thought was crazy that I was like, yeah, I actually get it. Like more well, but into it, yeah. our Oculuses and everything. And, you yeah. know, as that evolves over the next 5, 10, 20 years, I can see people doing that rather than going down to the win, you know, or whatever. It, so. Yeah, I'll, I want to let you continue your point, but it makes more sense to me to buy a virtual horse and race it and, you know, the gambling aspect, et cetera, versus like the top shot, like high, like I, I actually find myself having a hard time accepting and thinking it more the value right now that's put on like the, you know, the, the NBA kind of highlight sort of top shot yep. sort of whole, I consider that to be kind of more of a racket and just kind of taking advantage of people with a lot of funds during a pandemic that are, you know, exhausted, you know, all the trade, you know, traditional trading card exchange to date. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think that, I mean, I bought one top shot just to check it out. And I, I think like the point there would be scarce resources in general over the next many years to five, 10 years are going to, are going to end up having increasing focus on it and value placed to it. And, you know, as a baseball card holder way back in the day, but it's, it's just not where I spend, spend my time, yeah. but I, I dig it for music, right? Like the whole Taylor Swift scooter bronze fiasco, yep. like, yeah, I don't think anyone would argue that that was like super fair to Taylor Swift, although from a bit, you know, from a capitalism and just pure way that the deal was done, I'm, I'm guessing it was all, above water but when you look at the creator and the person who created that music you know not necessarily a winning scenario so i, I like the whole idea of building into building into these nfts the piece where if you sell your art you can get commissions going forward all that type of shit but yeah this is this area i would say is just outside of my domain i dig it i, yeah. I listen to podcasts about it but i ultimately don't dive in and try to learn more about that space yeah yeah that, that's fair and and on the point of so so on the point of creativity and you have a very creative business mind. You've been creatively generating value and, and incomes from a young age. Um, and and I, so another thing I love about you is like, I mean, we were both paper boys, but then like you had, and, and you had all these other sort of ways you were like making a buck, whether it was like, you know, and, and I, and I'd love, you can share a little bit more about like the caddying you did. And I know like you're like, collect, you know, I think at one point you're like collecting cans and just like whatever hustle you could, you could kind of get on. But, but um, for listeners, like kind of paint the picture of like your childhood. So you, you, um, you grew up in, in Andover, Mass. Is that where you spent like yep. your entire childhood? Yeah. Yeah. My whole family is Merrimack Valley. Like my dad's whole family, Durkin, Irish, Lowell family. So like Lowell, a lot of my family was in Chelmsford. Um, 
you know, Methuen, Bill Ricca, the whole, that whole area, but we're North, we're North of the wall people. I was joke cause I live like right <laughs> next to North station and yeah. I, I've been to the Cape like three times in my whole life, but I, I do love the beach. But Same. Um, we're also probably <laughs> lake people as well as a lot of North, Northern Boston people are, but yeah, I grew up in Andover. I, my mom, uh, raised us uh, and my stepdad, Dave, um, my brother was is younger than me. He has been my right hand for pretty much everything for my whole life and best friend. Uh, my sister as well. I don't want to say she's not my best friend, but, uh, you know, obviously brothers are typically a little bit closer, but she's, uh, she's awesome. And she's married, has two kids. She lives up in New Hampshire, up in Kensington. And she's actually, she actually works in compensations, which is funny, like in the HR people realm. So the two of us, rip on a lot of this stuff from time to time. She's down at Boston Beer and does great shit down there. And nice. my brother works in tech. He's product designer. I think he's, you know, I think he's honestly the best product designer in Boston. And whether it was his brother or not, or uh, I would still say the same thing. He's just super high quality. And and he was a Marine? Yeah, he's a Marine Corps. He went in when he was 17. He like graduated from high school early to go and do it, which is, which is awesome. So Were he's a... Sorry, well, how far in age difference in ages for you, your brother, and your sister? Like, and what was the line? Two, line two years on both sides. Yeah, my okay. sister's two and a half years older, and my brother's, I think, like eighteen months or something like that. Yeah. Okay. And then yep. you go to Andover High. Yep. Yep. Did you? Yeah, so I what, lived did like you, right around the high school. Yep. Okay. Did you grad? So what? Did you, you must have graduated. Did you graduate two thousand four? Yeah, I was so four. Was that the, the Toronto year? Uh. Yep. Chris yep, Toronto. Okay, yeah, I played basketball, yep. so I just remember playing against Chris oh, nice. Toronto when he was a junior, and he just smoked us. Um, yeah, he and, lights out. He had, yeah, he had a good three point shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think did he? Well, you went off to UMass, didn't he? Go? I thought he went. He went off and played somewhere, but I don't think he went to. I, don't know he I think he was UNH. But yeah, that's where he was. It was UNH. Wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you and so you and your brother. So you guys were all like roughly two years apart. So yeah, that's my brother and I were two years apart, and we were still are super, super close. Um, you mentioned this in the pre-podcast questionnaire, like your, so your, your, your father passed away from, from cancer. How old were you? I was five. Yeah. I was five. You were five. That, that's, um, that's sorry. Yeah. Like that's devastating news to experience at, at five years old. Um, what kind of cancer did he have? Um, it was either Hodgkin's or non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I've heard this a yeah. million times and I always forget which one it is, but yeah. I mean, but like, I think a lot of people, when they hear that, they're like, Oh, that's really sad. And like, yeah, I mean, it's sad, but like, I had a really great childhood, you know, like yeah. my mom was fucking amazing. Like my stepdad was awesome. My brother and sister, like I was really lucky. Uh, yeah. we, you know, we lived in it, we lived in a great town and education was good in town. And yeah. I think it just allowed me to focus you know, like I focused on school and was a nerd. Like I focused on sports and yeah. did, the, did the whole basketball, soccer, baseball thing. And then got into distance running. And for me, like I always look back on my childhood and just think like I had a, I had a fucking awesome childhood. Like there, yeah. there are no complaints. So, but yeah, I mean, other than that, I, yeah, you mentioned earlier, like we were both paper boys for the Eagle Tribune, flinging, <laughs> flinging 150 papers every single day to like six yeah. streets around town. And I, yeah. Yeah, that that hustle, um, the Cerrito family kept that hustle in, in the family for over a decade. Like I first got go. the paper route. Go. I did it for like three years and then I was, I played sports and, and so I applied for like the, you know, the Eagle Tribune scholarship and I got like a 50, I remember I got a $1,500 scholarship 
from the Lawrence Eagle Tribune. And I spent $1,300 on a gateway computer. It was my first nice. ever nice. computer. And I, I brought that old cow to college. And I actually, years <laughs> later, after I graduated college and my, my brother didn't have, a, you know, my brother needed a computer. He's, he was moving out to LA to try to make, make that work. I just gave him, I gave him the old tank. I gave him the old gateway. Um, but yeah, then my, my brother and sister both did the paper route for a while. And then when we all left the nest, my dad literally kept doing the paper route for extra money because I like, I just grew up with, he, you know, my dad worked for UPS and then he would like drive for flight line or he'd like randomly like drive this bread truck and like he'd deliver the papers. So like, I was just always around like that, like, and I was like, Oh, like he's hustling. Like I should hustle. Um, and it sounds like, you know, so you had the paper route and then. I love it. You're, so, you, so both of your parents worked at um, at Market Basket. Yeah, 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 big, nice. big Market Basket family. Yeah. <laughs> Same yeah, here. I mean, my dad was there like sixteen to thirty six. My sister worked there. Well, my mom and dad met there because my mom ran all the courtesy booths for Market Basket, and um, my dad was in like operations and marketing and all that. But the two of them met. I I, I should get this right, but I'm pretty sure that they met in the the main office and i remember they went to like some christmas party together or something like that and hit it off but uh yeah my my sister worked there the country club that me and my brother ended up caddying at and working out for many years in Dean ridge is owned by the demolis family so yeah the demolis crew runs deep in the fam and you know that they're hustlers man like they're nice. in a good way like the whole more for your dollar approach i still go to market basket and that's my supermarket has been forever um yeah. And they're on Instacart now, which is dope. But yeah, yeah I would say like I, I was, it sounds like similar to you. I was always raised trying to make a buck and it wasn't, it wasn't anything that was forced upon me. I think, you know, we have the genes for it and just yeah. like working really hard, but yeah. 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 That world. That's <laughs> awesome. I, I want, I want to hear, so before I want you to talk about your caddying and how that, like the, how you learned how to shut up and listen and, um, and, <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and I'll, and I'll add just quick, quick sides. One, one of the, one of the, more interesting jobs I was doing in high school. And then even then summers during college, like I was a full-time landscaper for the city of Methuen, but then I was like, okay, like that's only 40 hours a week. Like I got more time to make money. So like me and a few buddies are like, Oh, we found this like moving company. So like we worked for a moving company for a while. And like this moving company would literally pay like, you know, six, seven, eight of us, like, you know, recent Methuen high grads to like drive all the way to Boston in a truck to, you know, move some like, you know, family from like, you know, a house on Marlboro's from one house on Marlboro street to like another brownstone on Marlboro street. Like it was just like yep. these really fancy yep. moves and stuff. And, and then like, or like we'd go in and like, here's like a tech part of it. Like we'd go to like Cambridge and we'd help like Biogen move offices. Like we'd help this company move from Cambridge innovation center into like their brick and their new brick and mortar or whatever. Um, and so when I went to, when I went back to Boston university, like my sophomore year, I like negotiated a deal with um, the guys who ran this moving company. I was like, Hey, you guys are like spending all this money sending kids. And like, they were getting like a different pool of talent to do it. When we all went back to college, I was like, what if I just give you a bunch of BU kids to move uh, all, you know, to do all these moves in like Cambridge and shit and like Marlboro street. 
And, you know, but for every doll, you know, but for every hour that I provide you, you know, bodies to do these moves, you have to pay me. And it was like a negotiation, but we ended up netting out with like a dollar an hour. And so I would yep. provide yep. like 10 people to do like a 10 hour move. And so I would get paid like $10 an hour for 10 hours, so like hundred bucks. Yep. Yep. But I got wouldn't the have to the middle man here, the broker. But, but I yeah. wouldn't have to show up. And so I would just like, cause I was working at uh, the poor house on Boylston street. So I would work to the bar till three in the morning. And so I would just yep. sleep in, in the morning and I would make sure everyone showed up to the job and just like stay in bed. And I would just be like, sweet. Like, there we go. Um, <laughs> so it was just like turning the hustle into like, and, and so I bring that up because I mean, I imagine you like, these are lessons I, I won't get into like who, like pick those up from certain people, whatever. But when I was reading the, your answers to the pre podcast Q and a, like I just, it, it, it triggered a few, a few, um, a few of the lessons and things that I had kind of, um, you know, but executed, I guess, over the years. Um, and I imagine when you were like, when you were like caddying, um, you know, it started getting your wheels spinning on like, Oh wait, like, cause you, you know, you, you went on this nice riff in the, in the, in your responses, your written responses about like, you know, people, people think trades like, Oh, if I'm a tradesman, I'm just hammering nails. And it's like, well, technically I was like, an like I was a working for a moving company, but I was like, I was a broker in that situation and I wasn't, you know, yep. I wasn't even moving shit. Um, and so I just, you know, I, I, I think it's interesting, um, how we need to, again, it's like a brand, it's another branding exercise where it's like these trades, you know, like you can, you can get to the hairdressing trade, you can get to the carpentry, Jesus, I would get, if I could, man, I'd, any people I know young in my life that are good with their hands, like going to the carpentry trade, there's not enough good general contractors out there. And you're, I mean, you're making, you know, totally. a totally. few hundred grand a year on a bad year. Like there's, you know how many people hit me up? Yo, sir, video, I need someone to redo my kitchen. I need someone to redo this or that. And it's like, dude, I'm like, there's not enough. I'm like, they're, they're, they're not, they're, <laughs> there's not enough. Like, it's just, it's, it's wild. Um, so, so yeah, so I'm just, I'm just riffing right now, but I'm curious, you know, what, like talk to us about, you know, talk to me listeners about your, like your caddying. And then I'd love to kind of hear like what, what you, what your mindset was on like what you want to do kind of coming off of like graduating from Andover high, you know, being yeah. like this kind of student athlete that you were and, and, and just, you know, what, like how that, how you were kind of what, what your trajectory was like going to UMass and, and kind of like how you yeah. found and eventually found your way in the tech. Yeah, sure. Yeah. When I think, uh, I think about caddying, I mean, I think it's honestly, it was an amazing job. Like I think the unfortunate part today is it's, it's really dying off. Um, and back then, you know, it was all under the table. It was always cash. I think right now they have some Massachusetts law where you can get screwed as a kid. I mean, I think that they're just pushing the whole reporting side of it, which I get, I get like uncle Sam, wants his cut. But yeah, back then it was a great way to make 20 bucks a loop back in however old I was. I think it started when I was 10. Yeah. First time I went, <laughs> went down, you kind of go and you hang along the post and you just wait for someone to call you. And I was the runt. I was like 10 years old, super, super small um, compared to everyone else who was like 13, 16 plus years old, but I didn't get picked. And I went home. I was like the last kid on the post and I, didn't get picked. I went home like crying. And I was, you know, cause I really wanted to work. And this to me was like, the first, when we were doing the paper route, I mean, 150 houses on a route, you were making eight bucks a day. And me and my neighbor did most of it together and we were splitting it four bucks, you know, which is hilarious thinking about now because it would take you 
an hour plus and you're making four bucks. But um, like I went home crying to my mom and she was like, hold on a second. And she gave a, she gave a call down to the pro at the time, this guy, Dave Lane, who was a buddy of hers from the whole market basket crew. And, and he was like, come on down, bring him back down here. And this guy, Frankie Flanagan, who's, who's the man, I, I don't know how old he is now. What a name. He's like Frankie 65. Flanagan. Frankie Flanagan. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. He's a fucking Irish, but yeah. Uh, he had like a little practice bag with a with a five seven nine and a putter and a driver, and uh, I think normally he would just walk on his own. But yeah, I gave me it, and that was like my first experience, and it was great because he was the nicest guy on earth. And he ended up working full time at the Ridge, uh, you know, doing like uh, driver ranger and starter and all that. And when I went to work full time there, in addition to caddying and the pro shop and the bag boy and all that, we ended up working together, which was great. But yeah, I think like. When I think back to caddying, we we talked we talked about this at one point. Just like lessons learned, one is like being really diligent and getting good at your craft. Like it is it is a craft, and I think you see these caddies for Tiger Woods and all these guys, and it's not just like they're carrying the bag and and being quiet, right? Like they're providing recommendations. Like if you get to know your players, you should be able to pick out an iron, and if you know your course well enough, and I would say I know like every square inch of that course, like you end up being a value add to the player. But right. I think like value to me was, and you mentioned earlier, like just shut up and listen, like you're quiet a lot and that allows you just to suck in info. And when you, and when you think about like a kid who didn't you know, have a dad growing up and just a mom and you look at these country clubs, which by and large, I was counting for mostly men. Yeah. Um, you just end up picking up what a lot of these guys do for a living. And, some of it's great. And then, you know, you got some of it, which is, which is guy talk, which, you know, probably wasn't so great. And as a kid, you're like, holy shit, people talk like this, but you know, now I cuss like a sailor too. So, uh, but yeah, man, you, you learned a lot. And I think from there, I'd always been driven just on the business side of things, but that was where you get exposure to like people running companies. And there wasn't a whole lot of tech companies back then, but it was starting, you know, and I think like people owning accounting firms or venture capitalists and, it just opened up your mind, you know, like you saw a ton of different people doing a ton of different things. And over a course of five hours, you just hear a lot of shit. And when you get started to become friends with people, you start asking the questions. But I'd say that was the biggest thing. Like beyond that, a lot of these people are still my friends to the day, to this day. One, one guy there, Joey Carlano was a guy I caddied for when I was, I think like 11 or 12. And, you know, he kind of been like my second dad in addition to Dave growing up and, took me to a ton of concerts and sporting events and just, you know, really helped me and my brother and sister out a lot. And nice. he uh, gave me a lot of good life advice. So to me, caddying was an amazing job when I have kids, like I'd love to be relatively close to a golf course, although I suck at playing and play like once a year. I, you know, I was never a good player, but a very good worker. So uh, another I thing we have in common, I, I suck yeah, and yeah. play once. Hard sport. I, I played the most, I played the most in a year I've ever played last year. I played twice and I don't care that I'm not good. And I play with people that don't care too. And it's, yep. and I have yep. a very good time once or twice a year. <laughs> yeah. It's, dude, it's fun. And I, if yeah. anything, I mean, it's super relaxing. You know, you can, yeah. there's nowhere better than out than on a golf course where you got everything's beautiful and birds right. chirping. So. We, we got um, a group of a bunch of my buddies from Methuen High School. We did a little like summer reunion last year during the pandemic. We got together. We had, you know, we just like we did it. We were like, let's do We did a golf outing because we usually get together and we play. Do you ever play 45s growing up in Andover? No. Uh, no. It's a it's a Merrimack Valley card game. People play it in like Lowell and Andover Methuen, but it's like super, 
super under the radar. They played at like American Legion <laughs> and stuff. Um, but we usually oh, okay, get together. Okay. Yeah, we usually get together and play like a, a, a card tournament like once a year, like whoever's happens to be in Boston that year. But we couldn't do anything. So we we're just like, oh, let's go golf. But it's just like a yep. nice, it's yep. it's a nice relaxing thing to do and, you know, catch up with. So in particular, if you, you know, if you're with good company, like it's 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 really enjoyable. I could see myself doing it, you know, Three or four times get a, a little, year. Getting a little older, forward. yeah. Getting a little older, going out once, yeah, once yeah. every two, three months. Yeah. So, so what? Um. So, what was like? What was your head at? Like graduating Andover High, two thousand four. What was like? Yeah. What was Ryan? What was Ryan Durkin's? What was Ryan Durkin's head at? Uh, at that point in your life? Yeah. Yeah, I feel you. I mean, I I applied to four schools: so UMass, UConn, Bentley, and Babson, and. I went to I went to UMass for the first time and I was, I walked away and I was kind of like yeah like I could see myself here but I wasn't like dying to be like I absolutely want to go here yeah uh, the second time that I went I went on a like a recruiting trip for track and this guy Paul Noon uh, I was like the guy I was staying with on the track team and he's today like one of my best friends but nice. at the time I, I remember I was like because a lot of guys would go over for overnights and drink and all that and I now I wasn't a partier and did drink but. I just told Paul, I was like, I want to go to a class. I want to go to an interesting class. And then I just want to go to the locker room and check it out. <laughs> and that was yeah. like, I was pretty shy. I was pretty shy. And he took me to a class and we went to like a history class, which I loved. And nice. I was like, oh, this is so cool. Like I can picture myself here and doing this whole thing. And after that, we were just walking around shooting the shit and grab some lunch. And Paul's a really cool dude. And like straight up, you know, you always know what's on his mind. and. I was just like, hey, Paul, is, like, is everyone like you on the team? And he was like, yeah, Durkin, everyone's like me. <laughs> and, I was like, <laughs> and I was like, cool. And I, was, I, I remember like, I was only at UMass that day for like two hours or three hours. Yeah. And uh, I walked back to my mom and I was like, yep, I'm going to go there. But, That's uh, awesome. Yeah, other than, yeah, I went to Bentley and did, did a run with their team and all that. And, you know, nice guys, but yeah. I... I just wanted like, I wanted a bigger school. I wanted a school that was a bit more diverse. Like yeah. UMass was very, every, every, yeah. yeah. And I'm sorry. Andover is a very, uh, not diverse town. Right. And so I wanted to go place that was a little bit different and it was great. I loved it, man. Like, uh, awesome. I ran track there and I was doing finance there and always on the business side of things and starting nice. shit. And yeah. Now you mentioned you, you, you love, like you love history. You went and sat in on a history class. Like when you're doing like the undergrad, you usually have to do some liberal arts. Like, did you, did you end up taking some history classes or are there any, like, did you scratch I took, that like, itch? Spanish, undergrad? I took, like, yeah. I took like Latin American history and one other class, but I yeah. wouldn't say like I'm big into history. That kind of okay. was the class for the day that Paul had, but yeah, yeah it was mostly, it was mostly all business classes. I like cool. to write like, Nice. I like math. I don't know. I like everything, cool. man. Any anything that I can learn about that intrigues me, I'm down with. That's awesome. That's awesome. So you so then you graduate in two thousand eight and the oh man, you graduated one year after me. Luckily I was in a job and but people were getting laid <laughs> off left and right. Two thousand eight. That was a brutal year. Probably that was, that was one of the year. worst years in the last couple decades to yeah. be graduating college. So what, what were your prospects at that point for jobs? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my goal originally was to get into the Marine Corps and I got denied because of having asthma on my health records, which I thought was a total joke because of the fact that I was a long distance runner. You were a runner. Like, yeah. Fucking 70 miles a week and doing a mile, you know, 
down like the 415 range. And so that was pretty shocking. And we had to go through like the waiver process and I got letters written from my coaches and my doctor, but the military has like a pretty hard stance on that. Looking back, I probably just shouldn't have even, I should have like pulled that from my health records, although that would have been illegal, but <laughs> it, uh, it would have allowed me to get in. But yeah, so like right. 2008, I graduated with like with no job trying to figure out what to do. I wouldn't say I was worried. Like in my head, I had always hustled to make a buck. Like I, I knew I could figure out something, but I took a month off. I went across the country and back with my three best friends from high school and on the night that I got back, I was camping with my ex-girlfriend up in Maine. And I remember it was like three in the morning and a park ranger opened up the, the tent and I'm like in the woods. And he's like, Ryan, I was like, who the fuck is this guy popping into my tent at three in the morning? And he was like, you got to get home. Your brother's sick. And so my brother was out in California training, I think they call it like Mojave Viper or something. Like it's a three month thing before they ship you off to Afghanistan or Iraq. And they just like train you up and make sure you have your shit together with your unit. And so he was out there training his appendix had exploded while I was out in the desert, like doing a training exercise. And he just slept on it and woke up and was had one septic. So they flew him over to Camp Pendleton. Um, and he was in the hospital for like months. So there, yeah, the con and pro of that, the con is my brother almost died. And that was like, you know, I think it was thrown off the entire plane ride out there, just thinking that this kid was going to, he was like being read his last rights type of thing. And uh, the pro to it was I got to spend a couple months with him out in, in San Diego and going, me and my mom stayed there and I didn't have a job. So I was like, fuck it, I'm going to stay here. And I spent the mornings with him for six hours and my mom spent the evenings. And other than that, I was down the beach and also just contemplating life and figuring out what the hell I wanted to do. But yeah, back in not August, a bad time. To, yeah. Glad to hear your that was scary. But what a yeah, what a, yeah. what a what a thank thanks. But thanks, bro, for helping me find my way to what I'm sure you were in Pacific Beach, OB PB that area of San Diego. We what are like what ocean, a, Oceanside, like Oceanside area. So oh, I don't man. know if that's north or south of it, but yeah. But yeah, I mean, yeah. Brad had like he had half of his intestines taken out. Like he was Jeez. he was bad. Like cut open from. They'd probably gross out people, but yeah, he was cut open for a long time. They would just take out his organs basically and, and yeah. wash them with saline solution to clean them out. But that, uh, so that was scary as hell, but gave me some time to think about shit. And when I came back in August, late August, September, that was when I reached out to, uh, this guy, Boris, who I went to high school with, who had started a site called ZooMass Links with another guy, Jared out of UMass. And they were both web developers. And I looked at it and I was like, I want to learn about the internet. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I was like the last guy with a phone and flip phone. And I was probably the last guy with an iPhone, but I knew that I want to get into the space. And so I went and talked to him and just said, Hey, like I'll work for free for however long until you guys think if I had add value and if I had value, great. And if not, I'll go on my merry way. So that's how I got into tech, but yeah, really bizarre sequence of events. But I I actually ended up getting my waiver for the Marine Corps, (laughs) like 18 months into campus live but at that point we had raised money from highland and crv and i'm sitting there and i'm like you know what do i do here and i and i just decided i'm gonna stay in tech and and do that and my brother at that point in time was kind of finishing up his his six years and going into like inactive reserves and i was like yeah i'm just gonna i'm just gonna do this tech thing yeah so, no that at that point you were kind of on a path uh yeah yeah 
so so what was and so now you're you're kind of in the tech scene and and where were you living in Boston? Where you living? I was in Somerville. Yeah, we had there were wow, six so we were in a yeah we were in a Ten Hills like next to the big assembly area that back then yeah. was just a dirt pile. But I remember we had like six of us in a three bed one bath. Which looking back, uh, yeah, I feel really bad for me and Brad's ex girlfriends and. Oh my god! One bathroom for six, for six six people, four of which are dudes. Like, can't be a good scenario. But yeah, we were paying three hundred seventy five bucks a month in rent, which is Dude. insane. Yeah, so yeah. that allows to save up a little bit. It does. It <laughs> does. The similarities here are hilarious. So I lived on Highland Ave, right by, um, yep. right above the, right across from Somerville Hospital, which actually became convenient. Yep. We had a couple, couple tough parties where some people got injured, and just we could kind of. Carry them across the street. Um, <laughs> yeah, but the Drop apartment. The doorstep. Yeah, it was a tight four bedroom, one bath, which and had a three seasons porch on the back. And we, our landlord loved us. We we added, she added a little heater in the back, so we made it a five bedroom. So it was a five bedroom, one bath. And to your point about about you know the the one the girlfriend that had to, to hang out in that situation. My sister actually, when she graduated from Westfield State, moved in with us and she took over the back room. So like it was like four of like, you know, my best friends growing up and my sister just hanging out in like this super tight Somerville apartment. But that's what everyone was doing yeah. in the bar in the bar I know, I know. It's crazy sounds, and it sounds funny now. Yeah. Like if you were like people nowadays would say, Well, I de- I definitely want my own bed and I'm down to pay whatever, fifteen hundred to two grand. But Back then, man, like 375, we were even trying, we we're like, how do we get this down? You know, like, how, how, how do we get this down to 325? But yeah, it, we was, were at, it was a yeah, different we were kind of mindset. It was like two grand a month. So it was like 500 each. And then we added the fifth person and she she put the rent up a little bit. But I remember it was four. And I was like, oh, sweet. Now rent's going to be 460 a month. And it's yeah, just like, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. people now, like you said that to young people now, they're like, are you shitting me? Like, I got to spend like a yeah, couple grand. Yeah. Um, Yep. So, so what, 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 let's talk about Boston tech and like, it was like Boston 0.1.0. Like I actually met my wife at a Boston O meetup at Dylan's. Um, oh, no shit. Like we actually met. So like we actually met on Facebook, like she friend requested me and I, we had like 75 friends in common and we lived this like crazy parallel life where like she grew up in Lawrence. I grew up in Methuen. Like we went to the same pediatrician growing up. Um, in Tuxbury, wisdom teeth out at the same place. She went to Austin Prep with one of my best friends from Methuen. Didn't meet yep. our whole lives, and then just like you know, met at the appropriate time. She, you know, we ping, you know, boom, we ping online, and and I'm like, oh, I'm gonna be at Dylan's. Didn't tell her I was at a tech event, but it was a Boston meetup, and I was with like my reporter buddy and like three clients, and like she just showed up and just like embraced me, and like we've been together ever since. And then, but it was like that vibe that a Boston event had that like you get like. Like those events, a lot of those events in Boston in like 2010, 11, 12, where like I had like I had never met this girl before, but I was like, oh yeah, come to this bar. Like I'll be at this bar, and I was like, it's cool. It's like the Boston Tech crew. Like they're so yep. warm and welcoming, yep. and like like my you know you worked at Wayfair. You might have worked with Bill Giannoukas. He's a good buddy of mine. Like he sold Trumpet to Wayfair a few years ago, and then yeah. ran like yep. the mobile team yep. for a while. Yeah, he's doing good yep. path now. Like really cool. Um, um, 
uh, health tech startup, but he, you know, he was there with me. So he actually spent more, almost as much, if not more of the night talking to my now wife than I did because like they yep. would just chat it up while I was working the room. And like, so it's just like, I have all these like really interesting, like my buddy, Dan Rowinski, who used to be, you know, big you know, global, like one of the top mobile tech reporters for read, write web. Like he was with me and like, it was just, it was just like, a, and it was just, you know, the, the list goes on. So like, I just have such, I, I love that period of time um, in Boston tech. And, and I kind of, in some, some ways I miss it. And I, like when I was going into town, like before the pandemic, just in like the cup, you know, the, less than two years I was back from moving back from LA, I was having a hard time kind of finding that vibe, yeah. you know, like yeah. if I wanted yeah. to have a night with friends. So just, you know, I'm curious, like what was that time like for you? And then also like, how, where do you think those pockets are starting to, you know, create? And I think, you know, places like Venture Lane and I think what Christian Mogul's doing, like, I think yep. there's like really yep. interesting like, community clusters that are coming about and I can see us coming back real strong later this year. Um, but yeah, what was that time like for you? And like, what do you, you know, what do you think, you know, what do you think is going to happen to kind of bring some of that magic back? Yeah. Yeah. I feel you. Yeah. And I, like for anyone who was in the city, like that 2008 to 2012 range, I agree. It was, uh, it was, it was like one, there was a ton of shit going around town all the time, like events every single week. And so the number of connections that you made and like the willingness for people to talk about their ideas publicly was really high, right? You had everything going on with like the CIC and the Venture Cafe, the Nerd Center seemed to have you know, down to Microsoft, like they seem to have an event every two weeks or every week. And then all of us as startups, I know at Campus Live, we held weeks events every single month. I know the scavenger level up guys, like they did, there was a, just a shit ton of that. And it was, it was almost like to the point it was overwhelming, right? Because in the early days, like the quality about them. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they had that really dope office down there, yeah. Orange and Cambridge, and yeah. I mean, they threw a lot of really good events. And the nice thing it was like most of them had really good speakers and people who would come to the table and just talk about everything that they were doing with everything on the table and Q and A sessions, and it was very yeah. authentic and like the quality was high. And I think like what you've seen over the past. I mean, well, I'll then say like, then I went to Wayfair and Wayfair is very, it's a very insular company. Like you go heads down there and like you work really hard. They have great, they have great work-life balance. Like it's rare that after seven o'clock at night, you're, you know, they, we didn't have Slack back then, but it was rare that you'd be grinding it till midnight type thing. Like hardly anyone did that, but they, uh, when you were there, they worked too hard and it was incredibly smart people, but you, it was very much like you spend time with Wayfair people, which I, which was great for me because like, yeah. Having been out and about for four plus years, you know, I almost, I, I kind of needed a break. And it was, and it was uh, nice we got focus, really close. Get close to yeah, a few people. Yeah, and I was able to, exactly, and focus on yeah. my craft. And I really wanted to get good in product management. And it allowed me to do that. And after that, coming out of Wayfair, I went to Drizzly. And Drizzly, like the time of the vibe in Drizzly Tech, where I was standing there saying, okay, we're you know, 40 people, we have funding, we're ready to grow. And I was responsible for building out the product team and the analytics team and merch and category and all this. Like in my mind, I wanted to make sure that we were going out into the community and not just pulling with, you know, and we did do this, pull a number of people over from Wayfair, but I also want to make sure that we could get some variety and go out into town and figure out where are these pockets of people. And it was really bizarre because I, I had a really hard time finding what existed back then in 2008 to 12. And like, I'd like to think that if I like, I'd like to think that if I had to make a couple phone calls and try to figure it out, I'd be able to. And so 
it was it was a little bizarre. And so, I mean, we started holding events and, you know, doing tech tasting events where we'd have people come over and whether we were serving like wine or beer and different tasting type things and having guest speakers from different startups in town. Like we definitely got into that and held a couple of events. We would call them Greatness Awaits where we would just try to bring the community in the door and then also us partnering up with Toast and Wayfair and other companies in town. But it was it, it was definitely it was definitely weird, you know. And I think right now, you're. I think COVID is going to be a really good thing for this because I do hope that people will come out of retirement in a way and, and get active physically in town. But habits are a hell of a beast, and I, you know, it could just not happen. I think some people may just be used to not living in the city and being outside of it. But I hope it comes back. I think on my end. I, I'm certain, you know, I'm going to be taking a trip on my motorcycle for a couple months, but when I come back, I'm clearly going to want to get active in town and try to spur some things up. So nice. Actually, let's, let's talk about that because as we're like, and I, I love that, like we're, we're jamming long right now, but you're, I believe you're in a, you're in a hotel at the, at the moment. Are you already on, you're not already on your trip, are you? No, no. I just, no. Uh, I came down to New York for two, three days to meet up with a couple of people down here just to cool. see what the market's like. Yeah. Kind of, cool. kind of what we were just talking what, about just cool. down in New York. Nice. What is, um, I mean, I've been talking to plenty of people in New York. We just, I just worked on the, um, the Vizio IPO a couple of weeks back and my, our, yep. our, my, our CEO was, was in town all week and it was him and a couple of people were saying just how it's coming back a little bit, but just how like, it's, it's wild. Cause like one of them rented a car. He's like, I would have never rented a car in New York a couple of years ago, but I could like, just drive <laughs> yeah. around. I could just kind of bop around in a car and it was just yep. kind of like eerie, you know, it was eerie how um, easy it was to kind of just drive around and, and just the you know, lack of people. What, what's New York like right now? It's, uh, it's, it's quiet for sure. Like I went to, I'm a couple of blocks, uh, away from central park and I was like, yeah, I'll go down to times square, uh, tonight and see what's, what's going on right. down there. It was quiet as hell, but Which it's, is uh, always I do kind of like yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, to me, what it's, a treat. it's peaceful. It's different. Yeah, yeah. It's, you can get to your point, you can hop in an Uber and be there in 10 minutes instead of half an hour. So yeah. I, I'm digging it. And, and a lot of the people I know who did move out of New York for the past nine to 12 months, most of them are all coming back. You totally. know, like New York is a, I'm a, I'm a I love Boston yeah. and I'm also very, I do really love New York too. Like I'm not a New yeah. York hater at all. If anything, I think it's like, I want to yeah. bring a lot of the aggressive vibes that they have down here into Boston totally. in terms of, especially with consumer, but yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that that totally agree. The, the the Boston New York rivalry can just like begin and end with like the the Red Sox and Yankees. Um, we had yeah, Car yeah. Car Carly Chase on from the Martin Trust Center at MIT, and yep, she's yep. she's really neat because like yeah, if you know her, like she's she obviously like before the pandemic, like she would come to Boston and and be in in Cambridge at MIT from like you know Monday to Tuesday, Monday to Thursday. But she lives in Brooklyn. She's a New Yorker, and she and her job at the Martin Trust Center is to build like this bridge, this innovation bridge between Boston and New York because it's actually yep. just a like, yep. beautiful complementary nature to Boston, New York, where like. Boston has like, you know, the, during the school year, it's like the density of like one out of every four people is a college student. And there's all this like tech talent. And it's not to say that like New York doesn't have to, New York has different types of talent, but also like, and it's a great place to like build and grow businesses. But like, there's an interest, like there's, there's maybe more engineering talent and, 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 and there's a, there's a lot of great operator talent in, in Boston. So like, there's just this really interesting, like harmonious nature from like a innovation um, collaboration standpoint between Boston and New York, which, which I really just, I, I appreciate that places like the Martin trust center really get. And then there's like yep. these just cool, like 
kind of hybrid, kind of like, you know, working sort of, you know, innovation, sort of like almost like accelerator incubator hubs um, in each of the, you know, cities um, that, you know, are, are starting to develop like really good, strong, connective tissue. So, so yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And actually on, on that point, like loved it, love for you to share a little bit of your thoughts on just like the, like, that was one of the things actually that caught my eye that I flagged to Jesse Bardo. And I was like, dude, I gotta meet this Durkin dude. Cause you were like, Oh, the future of hybrid work. Like it's, it's not like, it's a combination of things like, sure. Like people are going to go into a city and they're going to like, maybe want a relationship with like a venture lane. And I do think like venture lane, I mentioned them twice now. I do think that they're particularly on trend with the hybrid work economy, but I live in Beverly and you and I have talked about this, um, because you spend time in like the Beverly Salem area, like, the, the like out like micro just like like local like community downtown like yep. co-working yep. hubs sh- you know can and should exist and and there's plenty of yep. companies that would be, you know like the fidelities and the capital ones of the world like that want to have a presence in the local downtowns and do already should like really be thinking about like being the brought to you buys, you know, of, of these big brick and mortar, like high, you know, like open spaces, you know, with coffee and, 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 and some maybe like food and whatnot, and just, you know, free Wi-Fi. you know, it doesn't have to be yep. a membership base. And just, I love your mindset of just like making it really, you know, Boston needs to reimagine its infrastructure. But I think a lot of local communities like Metro West, South Shore, North Shore need to all rethink their infrastructure to just allow people to kind of bop around and collide. And, 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 and you know, as, as the world comes back to quote unquote normal, I think it's going to really, you know, benefit us all. Totally. Yeah. And I know we've talked about this before, but like, when you think about Boston, what would help Boston in, in terms of getting people together, physically together? And by the way, I think like every physical meeting should also have the screen behind it with a Zoom thing for anyone to join in, right? Sure. I don't think of them as mutually exclusive by any means. But yep. you look at, you know, many years ago, like I said, when we had all the, the things happening within our individual offices and the Mass Challenge came along and held a bunch of events there. Today, when I think about where are some places that you can go and just go and not necessarily have to have your name on a list to get in or be paying, you know, 50 bucks a day to a WeWork type thing, like District Hall, I dig what they do down there at, in the seaport, right? You can walk in, like you can sit down at a table, you can pop outside yeah. and, and it's just like, a, if you, it's got a good vibe to it. it does. And when I think about infrastructure in Boston, like, why don't we have 20 of those? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I get, yeah. I get it, like real estate's expensive, right? But yeah. you look at this infrastructure bill that's coming down the pipe and, you know, a couple trillion bucks, and then yeah. you start thinking about what's that going to? And you start thinking about, you know, what's in the public should we interest? Up, <laughs> totally. Should we, should we be ripping up Summer Street and fixing potholes? Or should we like build some more innovation hubs and try to get a lot of really curious intellectual people together who can decide like, let's not, let's not just like redo a street. Like, let's have someone come up with a new thing that doesn't have to make us repave the fucking street every 10 years. Right. Like there's, there's opportunities that exist physically in in the cities. And then when you think about the suburbs, you got all these restaurants that just got hammered by COVID and a lot of them went out of business. Like let's turn these things into co-working spots. You can have in the same way you got Pat's pizza in town and Depot pizza and King's pizza and what all these pizza shops, like let them keep their name and maybe turn it into, you know, Pat's co-working spot and Depot co-working and King's co-working and they can still serve food, but you can also come in and work and it'd be this kind of Starbucks-esque vibe, but not necessarily needing to be premium. You can have them have their own type of vibes on an individual. I just see a lot when it comes to like 
physical infrastructure, and I'm waiting for more people to get really creative about it. There, there's, yeah. there are companies now diving into it, but yeah. I think that you look five, 10 years down the road, it's not just going to be WeWorks and under the WeWork brand. I think you're going to find a ton of one in, one in single, maybe two, three mom and pop little places. And I just want more communal places you can go to and, and not have to pay fucking money for it. You know, like yeah. be able to go to a place where, you know, when you walk in the door, you're going to have intellectual conversation the same way when a lot of people talk about San Fran and the difference out there, that's a lot of the time what they come back to talk about. You know, it's like this whole like casual collisions. Everyone's talking about tech. There's all these different places you can go to. It's, yeah. I just, I, I think we need more of that. So. Yeah, totally, totally agree. Uh, you mentioned the 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 motorcycle trip that you're about to go on, so I'd be remiss <laughs> yeah. if, if if we didn't if we didn't unpack that a little bit. So, how long have yep. you been? Um, you know, how long have you had a bike and 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 been into and been into riding and and sort of? I believe you even I believe you even have a new bike and like what and then what's the you know what's the trip that you have planned? Yeah, yeah, I. Uh... I've always liked bikes and I was definitely the kid bicycling around town everywhere growing up with my brother and neighbors. And that was, that was like what we did outside of sports and school. But yeah, my stepdad has ridden motorcycles his whole life and he rode BMWs and did a ton of different countries, uh, what's it called? Um, trips across the country. I think he saw like 46 or something of that of the U S continental U S states. But nice. I got into bikes, I think it was like 20, or 24. I got my license when I was like 19, I think, and did the whole course. But I didn't buy my first bike until I had some some money, which I think was around 24 years old. But I just bought originally like a Harley Sportster. Um, and then I rode that. I don't know. I put like 25,000 miles on that thing and took it down to Key West and back over a month and all over everywhere else. But yeah, this new trip, I, I, I traded in the Harley, went for the BMW. It's something I've always wanted. And decided you know, I've been investing my money and crypto is doing well. And I figured, fuck it, I'm going to get it. So nice. I did that. And then, yeah, I'm, I'm planning up for a multi-month trip. So I'm going to go down to Miami. Uh, well, first like DC hit North Carolina. So my buddies live around there, do Miami and stay there for a month and just work while I'm there. And then take the trip out West and do New Orleans and Austin and hit all the New Mexico, Arizona, Utah national parks and really digest that and almost go off the grid for a solid month doing that. And then California, Hawaii would be great. I've never been there. Um, come back and do Yosemite and Denver, Boulder, Colorado Springs, Nashville, and then back up. So it's going to be a lot, but it's i uh, I'll be working the whole time. You know, it's not like I'm just hanging out and I, I still work a lot and this will allow me to get a little bit more variety during the summer when it's going to be nice and a little more COVID friendly. So I'm not, don't have to worry about that quite as much, although we're clearly not out of the, out of the curve yet. So. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's good. I'm it's pumped. Good. I'm pumped that, about it. That's <laughs> yeah. great. And you anticipate it being something like through the end of the year. Yeah. I think like it's probably going to be anywhere from three to five months, probably more like five to do all that and not feel super rushed with it. And I think the, the play is you get a good vibe for different things. I'm not going to be just like, staying in nice places all the time. Like I want to go to some parts of the country and just live, you know, probably the way that people within that part of the country live. So a little cultural exploration. Nice. I've done cross country and back and down South and back, but I, I've only done it over the course of a month. I just want to soak it in a little bit more. So cool. Do you, do you yep. journal? 
Uh, I have in the past, although I haven't for a number of years. I, I'm going to do something with this. I don't. Yeah. I don't want to do a whole like, hey, look at me, you know, yeah. posting on Instagram. Even just for yourself. Day, but like, I was even just thinking that's for thing. yourself. That's the thing. Yeah. yeah. I want. I want something that, and honestly, I'll probably just keep it private yeah. and yeah. jot down a couple notes. And yeah. In the past, I when I did my trip down down to Key West and back, this was like probably six, seven years ago. I mean. The, the people you meet along the way, that's usually what I end up taking pictures of and, and writing down about because you end up spending time with a lot of people and then you other spend other days where you don't talk to a single soul for 24 hours, you know, or more. So, yeah, but yeah, I'm excited about it. It's going to be dope. That's awesome. Well, I know you're, you're going to be pretty plugged in. I mean, what it's, it's a, it's a good time and, and wonderful age to, to kind of, travel around the country but also kind of you know stay plugged in and be hybrid working from the road so i mean you'll still be plugged in to, to all your all your things but what do you what do you mo- and what are you most excited about though like coming back coming back to boston and and sort of what do you what do you, you know say you're say you're back like in boston by you know end of year start of next year like yep. what are you what are your uh what are your hopes for, for sort of like 2022 and, and beyond for, at least for, you know, for this city? Yep. Yeah. Good question. Um, I think like for my, for my own business, I just want to continue to scale this thing up because I think we'll add value um, across the community, but I don't know, man, for the city. I mean, I've always, I've lived either in Somerville or downtown. I definitely will want to come back and see my friends and hang with everybody. And I think we got a cool thing going on with the way fund and, I'll probably end up pushing on some people at some of the other companies. And the Wayfund is like a, it's a syndicate of Wayfair alumni who are investing in companies started by Wayfair people. And we've had good success with it. We've done a number of investments and beyond the dollars, I actually think the dollars is like 5% of the value. I want to make sure that we have alumni who are operators giving time to people starting companies. So I think if, if there's one area I'll push on from a community perspective, we'll probably just be taking our playbook from Wayfund and giving it away, you know, and saying, hey, the DraftKings crew, the Drizzly crew, the Cargurus crew, the Toast crew, like there's all these crews in town of people that, you know, when you look back at like the Indeca squad and the Vistaprint squad and the Compete squad, like there there's pockets of people and alumni who have really helped banded together to help their fellow people that they worked with. And I think there's a big opportunity to do that in the city. So that'll probably yeah, be where that. me and my squad will push. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love the idea of like everyone kind of embracing that fund model. And I love that you're, you're basically open sourcing the way fund model. And you're like, Hey, listen, folks, like connect with me. Like I got the playbook. Yeah. I think you have to like, it's, yeah. we could charge money for it and create a budget for a way fund, but it's uh, it just won't drive like, we're not doing this just for Wayfair alumni. If anything, I think that would be really sad yeah. if you were to look back 10 years from now and be like, well, the Wayfair crew did a really good job helping spur founders to go and start companies and giving them a little bit of a safety nut on day one, but no one else did like that. That would be, that would be bad. And so we want to try to help provide whatever support we can to help other people get them off the ground. So I fucking love it, man. I love your mindset on things. I mean, Joe, Joe Catalano and Frankie Flanagan must be proud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was fun. It was fun. There's a lot of there are a lot of really interesting people up there. Which is great. Uh Brian, this this has been a pleasure, dude. I'm looking forward to um staying in touch as you're as you're on your journey around around the country and and I'll be stoked to finally meet IRL when uh 
when when you're back and and things will will you know, hopefully at that point hopefully long be normal. Um, but thank hope you and so. gra- gra- grateful. So. Yeah, I'm grateful for all the time today. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks, brother. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This was great. Good stuff. Of course, bro. This is the beginning of something. You and I, you and That's I collided. Right. I mean, God knows what's going to happen in the years to come. There we really, go. Really excited at the prospects. I like it, man. Yeah, and great work to everything that you're doing. Like this is clearly needed, and just the more, yeah, the more guys like you and guys like Keith and Fizz and a million, a million other people who are wanting to dive into the space. I'm glad that you're actually doing it and, and getting people back engaged. We'll see what we can do. Right on. I always say there's no better time than now. Just do it. That's right. Like, That's right. Let's show the world. Like we can tell the world. Right, shit, let's, like, let's show the world. I appreciate it, Ryan. Really, really great. Really grateful for all the time. And, uh, and, and you take care and, and safe travels out there on the road. Thanks brother. Talk all right. Brother. All right. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Cheers, Boston.